You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we chat about rabies, post-exposure, prophylaxis for unvaccinated domestic animals with Pam Wilson. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have Pam joining us. Hey, Pam, thanks so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you, Sarah and Lisa, um, for your interest and for the invitation to participate in Veterinary Vertex. I am a fan of alliteration, too. <laughs> and also a thank you to your audience as well for taking the time to listen. Pam, your JAFMA article discusses rabies post-exposure prophylaxis for unvaccinated domestic animals. Please share with our listeners the background on this study. Okay, well, background, it's going to sound like I'm going way back, and I am. Uh, I was interviewed for my job in zoonosis control over 30 years ago by Dr. Keith Clark, who became a mentor. And I will be mentioning his name on and off during um, this podcast because of his rabies associations. And during the interview, I was asked about handling rabies exposure scenarios. And I mentioned that I'd noticed that um, the protocol in Texas state law differed from the national recommendations. And Dr. Clark at that time was listed as a committee member for the compendium recommendations. It's, uh, they're in the compendium of animal rabies prevention and control. So he was associated with two different protocols, which was confusing to me. And he mentioned that yes, Texas had developed its own protocol for unvaccinated animals that were exposed to a rabbit animal, including immediate vaccination against rabies, instead of waiting five months into a six month quarantine to vaccinate, which at that time were the compendium recommendations. And since this was a novel rabies post-exposure prophylaxis, and we'll refer to that as PEP from here on out uh, protocol, we thought it would be a good idea to compile Texas data and get it published, we were hoping, in a peer-reviewed journal, we were hoping, in JAFMA. <laughs> and it did get published in JAFMA. And since then, we have had kind of a series of articles on the Texas PEP protocol and its data published in JAFMA. And this most recent one was our fourth and of course, they're scanning different time periods. And it actually kind of became my mission to keep publishing Texas data on this topic. Because after that first article was published, Dr. Clark mentioned that by getting the data out there and published, many animals' lives were saved. So in addition to really caring about public health, my passion for working in zoonosis control definitely includes animal health and safety. And by the way, for purists out there, yes, realize that humans are animals too. Uh, so purposes of our rabies discussions, when we say animals, we're talking about non-human mammals. Uh, I would like to mention that the compendium now does recommend immediate vaccination of unvaccinated animals that have been exposed to a rabbit animal. In fact, they mentioned trying to um, do the vaccination within 96 hours of the exposure. And for clarity, I also want to mention that both the compendium and Texas state law do 
provide the option of euthanizing the animal instead of administering PEP. And if I could do a side note, because I think that this would be of interest to clinicians to keep in mind, that we are discussing in this study on vaccinated animals that have been exposed to rabies and got PEP. But both the compendium and Texas state law for currently vaccinated animals have the same protocol, which is to vaccinate immediately and do strict isolation for 45 days. So with that being said, what were some of the important findings from this study? Well, the current PEP protocol in Texas, again, for unvaccinated animals that have been exposed to a rabbit animal, is to immediately vaccinate them against rabies, confine the animal for 90 days, and administer boosters on the third and eighth weeks of the confinement period. Uh, For animals that are less than three months of age, um, additional vaccinations may need to be administered to ensure that the animal receives at least two vaccinations at or after the minimum age designated by the USDA for the particular vaccine that was given. And by the way, in our state law, this is for animals for which the the whole PEP protocols are for animals for which USDA licensed vaccines are available. However, in all of our different study periods, there have been animals that have gotten uh, extra label vaccine administered, uh, very frequently goats. Um, We've, you know, had occasional, you know, pigs. Uh, This past study, we even had a deer and a wolf dog hybrid. But in the, the, the law, it mentions USDA licensed vaccine, but extra label at the discretion of the veterinarian. So the main take-home relevance, I think, of the study is that the current Texas PEP protocol, which was administered during the 10-year period of this study, remains a viable option for unvaccinated animals that have been exposed to rabies. There were 1,218 unvaccinated animals that received PEP, and uh, 99.8% did not develop rabies. Um, The three that developed rabies were less than 12 weeks of age when PEP was initiated. This was what was very rewarding to me, um, one of the uh, parts of doing this whole study. When the Canadian Council of Chief Veterinary Officers was developing their national recommendations, they heavily cited Texas's PEP and the articles that were published in JAFMA. Well, they came up with a modified protocol, um, does still include immediate vaccination, but they went in, and this is for unvaccinated um, dogs, cats, and ferrets, but they went into um, just considering a booster at three weeks uh, based on case-by-case investigation, and then no vaccination at the eighth week. Well, this led to me having just fantastic discussions and information sharing with Canadian public health veterinarians in Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia. Um, They all also have a recommendation for extra vaccination for the uh, PEP that was started in very young animals. And all the provinces, you know, they had special little tweaks to their national recommendations as well. But to me, the importance is that just as the Canadian Council and these provinces 
reviewed PEP articles from Texas and developed their modified recommendations. Now Texas consider, can consider their um, modifications when we start reviewing our state law for possible amendments. So it's been a really good learning activity, um, I think all the way around. I also had a contact with a rabies expert who had an interest in researching the use of MABs for PEP in animals, uh, which might inspire other researchers to pursue such studies. So um, all of this is also included in the discussion section of the article. But to me, that is part of the significant impact of having data published in JAFMA. Well, thank you for sharing it with us, Pam. Uh, I don't think we said this yet, but you have been a practicing veterinary technician for years and then went out and got your doctorate in community health. At what point, and clearly you have a passion for rabies, uh, what what sparked your research interest along the way in rabies? Well, my mentor, Dr. Clark, was an internationally recognized rabies expert. And he stimulated and nurtured my interest in rabies as soon as I began working at the health department. Uh, I worked on these novel rabies initiatives with him, like the creation of the oral rabies vaccination program in Texas for coyotes and gray foxes and the Texas's PEP protocol, which we're discussing now. And it has been an exciting ride to be involved with these very cutting edge projects. Well, we're very pleased that you decided to share it with JAVMA. Why Why did you decide to submit this manuscript to JAVMA? Well, again, when I started working at the health department, uh, Dr. Clark tasked me with getting an article published on Texas's rabies epizootic in domestic dogs and coyotes, which was very novel as well. And so Dr. Clark and I both agreed, let's submit this manuscript to JAVMA. And um, we went with Javman because it's peer-reviewed, has an excellent reputation, and we considered it the gold standard of veterinary publications. So I was so thrilled when that article got published. And it was after that we started collecting data on our PEP protocols and again turned to JAVMA for publication. And now we have had... This is, the, like I mentioned, the, the fourth manuscript on PEP. Uh, with other co-workers, uh, we have had articles published in JAFMA on rabies and skunks and rabies and bats in Texas. It has always been a very positive experience working uh, and interacting with JAFMA staff, present company included. <laughs> And if I could, I would like to do a shout out to Karen Dotson, the editorial manager. She is not only efficient and helpful, but so nice with which to work. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We have a fabulous culture. We we love what we do, you know, and what you're doing too, right? You're you're impacting one health. It's not just you're saving animals, you're helping veterinarians, you're helping the public health. Uh, and that that's what we strive for too. This, that's exactly right on the One Health. <laughs> Pam, you talked about some of the interesting uh, findings and significant findings from your manuscript, but what surprised you? 
I think on this one, um, it was the first PEP manuscript in which we also include data on the number of unvaccinated um, domestic animals that were exposed and were euthanized instead of receiving PEP. And I was surprised that the number was as high as it was since there is this, you know, uh, PEP option. Uh, it was like 925. So we did a little closer look and at, in some of the more detailed reports, it would describe the animal if they were kittens or puppies. And we found that about 45% involved kittens and puppies. And frequently this would be um, a litter that was attacked usually by a rabbit skunk, um, an occasional rabbit fox. And I think skunks are great. You know, uh, they're marvelous critters. Uh, but when they have rabies, they really practice some pretty insidious behavior, um, such as attacking litters and being found like chewing on the heads of kittens and puppies. And I know that's kind of a, a horrible mental image, but uh, that is all part of it. Uh, plus, uh, unfortunately, there are case scenarios in which cats uh, were depopulated because they were on the premises where a rabbit animal was found and PEP could not be easily accomplished in these animals. And so even if there was no direct exposure observed, um, they were euthanized in an abundance of caution since rabies is a fatal zoonotic disease. And by the way, um, I just wanted to mention, we wouldn't have data to publish if it wasn't for the dedicated zoonosis control staff statewide who prepare all of our zoonotic incident reports. And it is uh, our zoonosis control staff out in our regional offices, along with uh, local health departments, um, certainly local rabies control authorities and animal control officers across the state who do an amazing job of investigating um, the rabies cases. And I also want to mention and give kudos to the remarkable laboratory personnel who confirm <laughs> if these are rabies cases and even very often what type of variant we're working with. So it couldn't be done without all of those folks. Yeah, it's a really big undertaking. I participated in the Illinois State VMA's Power of 10 program last year. And one of the modules was actually working with a state public health vet on like a rabies exposure mm. scenario and just everything that goes into it. It's so much. It is very involved and a lot of people and a lot of people that you depend on, like I said, not only our, our uh, regional zoonosis control staff across the state, but all the animal control officers out there, rabies control authorities that have to know what they're doing and take it seriously and do all the investigations and make sure that they're protecting the health of people and animals that are potentially exposed to a rabbit animal. Yeah, thank you. And to our listeners just joining us, we're discussing rabies post-exposure prophylaxis for unvaccinated domestic animals with our guest, Pam Wilson. So Pam, as we discussed previously, you are a licensed veterinary technician and a doctor of community health. 
How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Well, I'm going to go in the way back machine. <laughs> um, to begin with, I had excellent English instructors before entering college, and they taught me fundamental writing skills, um, which really launched my whole interest in preparing manuscripts. And I felt, feel that they gave me all the basic skills for being able to do that. So, you know, kudos to all of them as well. Um, my 14 years working in the private sector at an animal clinic, I feel were very important um, because they gave me real life veterinary perspective, uh, uh, boots to the ground <laughs> type experience. Uh, in working with animals and with concerns about rabies and rabies exposures. And I feel that that was very important when now working at the state health department, um, dealing with public health and state laws. Um, there's a lot of I statements <laughs> in what I'm saying. So I would also like to take this opportunity to thank my co-authors on the article, um, Pat Hunt and Dr. Eric Fonken. We, to me, made a great team. Um, we, we were very in sync with each other. Uh, everybody in my office knows that I am not technology savvy at all. <laughs> and Pat Hunt can weave magic with databases. And he was able to pull all of the, these rabies scenarios and compile them. And uh, he, he understands the very integral guts of the computer programs. And then he and Dr. Fonk and Eric and I, we went through and reviewed all of these scenarios. And we made sure that we were all in agreement um, with the, the post-exposure elements. Uh, so it was a very positive experience working with both of them. Um, I don't know if they'll say the same thing about me because I'm a little uh, retentive. <laughs> um, I get a little intense, but they, they put up with me really well. And they would kind of talk me down <laughs> if I was like, think we should worry about this. <laughs> so they were they were great. So got great co-authors and I just feel so fortunate both uh, I, my um, work at the clinic and with my work with all of my zoonosis control colleagues for all of these years. I have worked with the most amazing people who are dedicated to their jobs. So it you know I, I and all of this is possible because of them. The very special field that we work in. <laughs> yes. Now, this next set of questions is really important for our yes. listeners. The first one is going to be relating more towards the veterinarian. What are a few examples of key pieces of information the veterinarian should know before discussing rabies post-exposure prophylaxis with a client? Okay. Well, and speaking of people that make all of this work, veterinarians and veterinary technicians are right in the mix with all of that. Uh, they are such an integral part of dealing with post-exposure scenarios, uh, counseling clients, uh, understanding rabies and what constitutes exposures. So I would recommend that um, the veterinarian 
collect information pertaining to the exposure, and then, of course, discuss with the owner. There are the options for PEP or for euthanatizing the animal. And some of the factors to consider are that animal's health, um, its immunocompetence status. That's where, you know, some discussions start entering in with very young animals. Uh, the location and severity of the exposure, um, if it's a direct exposure, um, probable, like, you know, reasonable to assume that there was a, an exposure or a low probability. You're dealing with rabies, so you're erring on the side of caution to go ahead and, and do PEP. Now, for instance, example of the skunk chewing on a puppy or kitten's heads, that's considered a direct exposure. Yeah, the communication is so critical for these cases. So thank you for touching on that too. And now on the other side of the relationship, what are some examples of important things clients should consider around rabies post-exposure prophylaxis? Well, of course, clients should consult with their veterinarian. Um, and to get from the veterinarian, for one thing, the very nature of rabies, it's a very elusive disease. And a lot of times there aren't any concrete answers. Um, a quote that I really like uh, is in an article co-authored by um, Dr. Ruprick. It's in Lancet. But um, it goes, anyone seriously working in the field of rabies has been fascinated by its complexity and frustrated by its mysteries. There are so many unknowns on this disease that has been around for eons. Um, even the elusiveness of the incubation period and how, how many variables. So to discuss with their veterinarian a bit about rabies, that it is a deadly disease, uh, what constitutes an exposure? You know, typically it is infected saliva from a, a, an infected animal uh, going through a break in the skin, frequently from the bite of an animal, a rabid animal, uh, but it could be saliva contacting any break in the skin um, or mucous membranes, eyes, nose, mouth, or neural tissue. Um, that's infected contacting that, which might happen with a, a butcher or a hunter or something like that. But anyway, to discuss what might be an exposure, um, the degree of exposure their animal had, potential risks involved with PEP, um, oh, to learn from their veterinarian some of the clinical signs. Uh, an, uh, an animal developing rabies may exhibit just a few of these clinical signs, may exhibit a lot of them. And so to know that they should contact their veterinarian and then, of course, the Department of State Health Services should be notified too if the animal starts to exhibit any of these potential clinical signs. You want to play it safe when it comes to rabies. For sure. That's a long time. Client compliance would be pretty tough for 90 days. It Yes, it can be. But you just have to really weigh in with the client that and actually the clients can contact their local or state health department as well for, for guidance. Um, you always want to err on the side of caution with rabies, but 
you want to, you know, make things work for the animal too, and for the people that are involved, but you want to keep it to a minimal amount of contact, you know, so. Yeah, no messing around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very importantly, the veterinarian should stress to the owner, the importance of pre-exposure rabies vaccination for animals. Uh, We don't want the owner feeling that, hey, pre-exposure isn't needed because in the future, if an exposure happened, you know, we have this post-exposure option. And we don't want anybody reading our article or listening to that this podcast to think that pre-exposure is not important. It is. Um, not only are rabies vaccinations legally required for dogs and cats in Texas and most other states, They are important from a human health and safety perspective, plus an animal health and safety perspective. I mean, your animal could pick up a downed rabbit bat, and you may never know about it until it is too late to administer PEP. I mean, once the rabies virus is in the nervous system, it's too late. Once uh, the animal is showing clinical signs of rabies, PEP will not be effective. So then you've had an animal that's unnecessarily died of rabies and all the concerns about people and other animals that have been potentially exposed to rabies through that animal. So pre-exposure rabies vaccinations, very important. Yeah, great. Thanks, Pam. And, you know, to listeners who might not know this, uh, most of us as veterinarian and veterinary technicians who work with animals are vaccinated as well. And we actually get our titers checked. Um, So, yeah. Uh, so thank you, Pam. I learned a lot. And as we wind down, we like to ask this just slightly fun kind of question. Uh, so what is the oldest or the most interesting item on your desk? Well, a friend of mine who excavates for fossils uh, gave me a rather impressive piece. Uh, it is an ammonite. This little snail looking mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's from the Crustaceous period, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, which I was informed runs anywhere from 65 to 140 million years ago. So it's certainly the oldest piece. But one other fossil that I have was uh, when I was in college at SAU in Carbondale. So this was by 1978. My beloved dog, Ripple, was out in the yard excavating as well and uh, my very funky duplex. And he came in with this little rock and looking at it, you can't see it very well on here, but it has numerous little fern fossils in it. So he was just so smart. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you so much for having me and for your interest in this article. Um, I hope that your readers enjoy it and benefit from it. Um, And so it's just been a fantastic experience to be included in JAFMA and to do this podcast. (laughs) Well, great. Thank you again. And to our listeners, you can read Pam's article in print JAFMA or on our journal's website. I'm Lisa Fortier with Sarah Wright, and we'd like to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting edge research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. 